to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Already uh, read for us from Deuteronomy, that is, you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he always added or had the in, in, question or add that secondary phrase and love your neighbor as yourself. The second is as great as the first. Now, that is huge. The second loving neighbor is as great as the first loving God. And of course, John picks this up and says, if you say that you love God, but you don't love your neighbor, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. But we recognize as we bookend our series with love of God and love of, of, of neighbor, that the bridge between those two realities is the love of self. That if we don't love ourselves well, we will be loving our neighbors parasitically. If we don't love ourselves well, it probably means that we haven't really deeply received of the love of the Father. That our love of the Father is utilitarian for us. So in the last little while, we've been looking about what it might look to, like to love ourselves and uh, well without it becoming uh, creepy. You, you know what I mean? Without it becoming a, uh, I worship the idol of myself. We have way too much of that going on. And in fact, the worship of self is not the love of self. The idolization of self is not the love of self. Because the true love of self has to be rooted in the love of God. Otherwise, it goes sideways very, very quickly. And because it's rooted finally in something other than the love of God. Insecurity, fear of one kind or another, for example. So today I have 30 minutes to talk about uh, loving the emotional 30 minutes, right? Or do I, are you now down, back down to 25? Thank you so much. Uh, to talk about uh, the love of the emotional self. And I don't know exactly why I got assigned this, because I'm Dutch and we don't have emotions. Um, but um, when, when, we, when we think about this, um, the emotional aspect of our being is probably the, one of the more misunderstood aspects. Uh, some of us have been well-trained in emotions. And by that I mean that our emotional responses are calibrated to reality. They match what's actually going on. But others of us in our parenting, the way we were parented, the way we were raised, uh, the way we were invited into into life. Hi, how you doing? Please. Um, and uh, we were we lost uh, the capacity to uh, love well. And so what I want to talk about, first of all, is a is a is a kind of a framework this morning is to invite you into uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, which is, it's fun here, so don't panic, everybody's okay. Uh, Genesis 2, 7 tells us what the nature of our human community is like. So Genesis 2, 7, I'm not going to have you look at it, we've looked at it often enough, it just says, God um, uh, took the dust of the earth and breathed into it the breath of life. All right? And so when he did that, we have these two twin capacities, dust and dirt. But then the breath of God. So we have the material, the physical, and we have the divine, the spiritual. And those two capacities, physical and spiritual, 
are the primary components of the human person. Those two things together make a soul. So again, as we've said over and over again, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. And the fundamental uh, 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 elements, components, that's the word I was looking for, of the soul are physical and spiritual. But of those, when those two come together, there are three secondary uh, components, emotional and social and intellectual. So when we talk about the soul and and as we ask what it uh, 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 how, what the health of your soul is, what it means to love yourself, your soul, we're talking about those five dimensions. So Darren's talked about the physical component. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the emotional component, the feelings part of what it what it what it means. How many of you have been misled or mistrained by your feelings? Ended up in the ditch somewhere because you followed your feelings. How many have um, at the same time recognized that your feelings have saved you from a lot of stuff? In other words, there's been a gut check. And I don't know why I don't want to do this, but it's just kind of an intuition. Right. So so those were both both kind of aspects of the emotional side. When we talk about the soul, then uh, as having those five dimensional, that emotional component of the soul is the responsive, reactive Thing. It's it's the the therm, thermos, thermometer that indicates kind of what's going on inside and outside and our response to it, our reaction to it. The, and it's where we register our feelings. And it is also the place from which our motivation to action occurs. You don't do anything simply because it's a good idea. You do something because you want to do it. It's the wanter. That is rooted in the emotional soul. So when I teach preaching, for example, it, uh, uh, it, the difference between teaching, teaching is the delivery of content. But preaching is the desire for life change. And if I don't, in my preaching, touch somewhere at the emotional level, all of the ideas in the world aren't going to change behavior. This is, by the way, why we don't need more clever ideas, we need a stirring of emotion that moves us to a preferred outcome when it, when it comes to life in the church. Because we all can think, but thinking isn't going to get us off the dime. It's a desire, it's a longing, it's a, and that, that's the emotional side. Now the problem, of course, is that preaching can veer away from appeal to emotions, which is necessary, And right into emotionalism, which is the stirring of emotions for the sake of response. Does that make sense? If you've gone to a movie and and, and, and you can can see this happen, whether you you watch something on the screen and there's a genuine response to what is happening on the screen. You've identified with the characters, you've identified with the action, and there's, a, there's an, an empathy, there's an identification. You, and whether it's a, a, a Hallmark uh, commercial or a Kodak commercial, they don't make those anymore because Kodak's disappeared. But anyway, um, the, those old people can recognize what I mean when we talk about those moments. And, and there's this, this surge of emotion, right, by which we identify. But you also know when you're being played. You rec- okay, wait a minute. This has nothing to do with whatever it is. This has something to do with the producer, the director, playing with my emotions. You recognize that. 
Uh, and the same thing occurs um, when we think about uh, our emotional health and well-being. Now, I've got I, I to be honest. When I talk about emotions, this is uh, relatively new territory for me to be thinking about. I've never preached a whole series of sermons with Darren or anybody else for that matter on what it means to love God, love self, and, and, and love neighbor in this way. I've been content to float over the surface of that verse. So when, when he pushes me to go down below the surface and think what it means to love my emotional self, it's challenging to me. And so this is kind of still wet cement. Is that okay? Uh, so I don't, I, I, I'm still trying to figure this out a bit. And, and I invite you to be part of the conversation and dialogue in this. And I really do have a text for this sermon, but we're not going to get to it at first. The reason is... Before we can talk about emotional healing, which is an important part of emotional love of, of self, I want to talk a little bit about what the function of emotions are and what kind of the core emotions are. Does that make sense? So in that mind, let me uh, say, and this is very simple and probably simplistic, but it's a way that I can conceptualize and talk about these things in my own, in my own thinking. For that case, there are five core emotions, two positive emotions and three protector emotions. The two positive emotions are love and joy, love and joy. And you can recognize in all of those gradations and ranges. Love can be like it can be desire. It can morph all the way over into lust. Do you, do you see? So there's a range there. Joy can be that deep-rooted energy that's rooted in the character and nature of God, but it can be happy, or it can be giddy, or it can be silly. So there's a, there's a range there. Love is the environment, however, the, 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 the structural uh, reality within which we were built to live. Here's what I mean. When God took that dust of the earth and the breath of God and breathed into it the breath of life, it was within a context of the universe. And Paul tells us, the book of Genesis underlines as well, that the universe exists in God. The universe exists in God. This is Acts chapter 17. That means that we are built for an environment of love. The air we breathe. And why do I say that? Well, because God is love. And if we exist in God, we exist in love. Therefore, love is that kind of, if, if, if you can imagine, the machinery of our life functions best when it is surrounded, soaked, and saturated with love. Does that make sense? So love is, is not just kind of a, a feeling. Love is the entire environment within, within which we operate. Joy, on the other hand, is the energy and the internal capacity of the soul that arises out, Dallas Willard says this, joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Now, you'll notice that that's not happy, happy. Sometimes joy weeps. Sometimes joy suffers. But joy is this pervasive sense that God is on the throne, 
that all is well with the world. God is at work in all things for good. And therefore, this pervasive sense of well-being that enables me to push back against the relentless pressure to conform or to believe things that are not true, etc., etc. Right? So joy is that is that internal um, valve that builds up pressure inside adequate to the external pressure that we're getting at outside. And enables us, even though the outside is a cross, joy is what enables us to endure it. This is Hebrews chapter uh, 12, where it talks about how did Jesus endure the cross? It was joy. That was the strength that enabled him to endure it. Some of you are in that season right now and you're just wondering, how am I getting through this? Joy is how you're getting through it. Doesn't mean happy. Doesn't mean giggles. But it's that, that sense of, of presence in the middle of pain. I'm not alone. God is with me. There is an end. And I'll be okay. Now, in addition to those, there are three protector emotions. The first one is fear. That indicates the threat coming, an imminent threat. And fear is the signal that we are being threatened. Now, please notice this can work in a couple of different ways. If it's not properly calibrated, we can be afraid of our own shadow. Right. But on the other hand, fear is a way of discernment. Fear is the emotion, that gut check that says something's not right. If it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. That's the emotion of fear protecting us from potential and imminent threat that needs to be calibrated to reality. Yeah. The second one is sadness. Sadness indicates loss. Sadness indicates that we have suffered loss. So grief, mourning, even sometimes depression can be one of the emotional responses to having experienced loss. Now, please notice, I believe that God has given us these protector emotions to guard and guide and regulate and calibrate love and joy. But that love and joy are the kind of the fuel, the engine of the life that need to be... Because if, if, if discernment doesn't manage love, we will find ourselves getting into deep water. Right? If, 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 if fear doesn't help us calibrate love... Now, here's, here's where the... Well, let me talk about the other one. Sadness is an indicator of loss, but it's also a way of empathy. When I can identify with somebody else's pain, with somebody else's loss, that enables me to be part of a human community, right? So we have this sense of loss. And then finally, anger, one of God's gifts, one of our three protector emotions, anger signals a boundary violation. That somebody has stepped over a line in one of the five dimensions of the soul. Physical, spiritual, emotional, social, or intellectual. And has tread, put their foot where it doesn't belong. And, and anger is our, our surge of, of emotion that says something's not right here. You don't have the right to say that or to do that or to touch me there or to whatever. Do you see? And anger, properly trained, is an indicator of 
something's wrong with this system. So that leads us to this to to this surge of, of fairness, of justice. For example, justice is is anger framed externally. So does, I don't know if this is helpful at all. This is kind of what I'm playing around with. But so I want you to start to think about these. All of these things, all of these positive emotions, love and joy, need, need the controls. Otherwise, they go. So it's possible, for, for example, without the control mechanisms of those protectors for love to veer. Because here's also where desire is. And desire can move quickly to lust and the objectification of other persons. So we need to have a clear sense of where the boundaries are. Thank you, anger. Does that make sense? So anger is not an enemy. Now, here's what happens. Emotions are neither good nor bad. They just are. They can be helpful or unhelpful. To the degree that they are calibrated to reality. So here's what I mean. Does the fear I'm feeling match the reality of the threat that is imminent? Does it, is, does, does it match what is actually happening? Is my anger response appropriate to the degree and kind of violation? Is my sadness genuine indicator of the depth of the loss I've experienced? Those are ways of thinking about calibrations because our emotions are trained in childhood. Some of you have experienced this as a, as a, as a kid growing up and, and something happened to you that was a catastrophic loss to you and you were told what? Get over it. Don't cry. Just buck up. Move on. Well, in some instances, that's appropriate. In other instances, maybe that loss needs to have been trained properly. Do, do, do you see? So we, for example, I mean, and, and it happens with kids all the time. You know, we had our middle son, I, he would do this regularly, he'd fall off his skateboard or crash his bike into, into the curb and, and, and he'd skin a knee or whatever it was. And then he'd look around. And if somebody was watching, he would cry. And if nobody was watching, he'd just get right back up, kind of rub the blood so that it smushed in with the dirt and away he'd go. Right. That's a way of understanding how emotions get trained. So you don't rush right out there. Oh, my poor baby. Kissy, kissy. No, it's a skin knee. He won't die. On the other hand, when genuine loss is experienced, and, and here's the problem. You've got to raise a child in a way that's appropriate to that child. So you have to learn where they're feeling that loss Right. Some of you have experienced this with loved ones. They've they've lost a long time mate, uh, a husband, a wife they've been married to for for decades is lost. And, and they seem to be able to hold it together. They work through the grief cycle. And then a year later or six months later, one of their pets dies. And they just completely lose it at an emotional level. And you uh, OK, now what's happening there is not. They love the dog more than they love their husband or wife. It's that the loss compounded the first loss. And our care for people, including ourselves, in a season like that, is how we have to love ourselves and love that emotional self. We have to give ourselves space. So when I'm walking with people who are experiencing the loss of a loved one or going through grief, sometimes even the loss of a job or the loss of, of a long-term relationship or a loss of, 
of something that is huge to them, you just give yourself some space. It'll be okay. Does that, does that make sense? But here's what happens. These protector emotions are good thermometers, but they're not good thermostats. They're good passengers, but they're not really reliable behind the wheel. It's good to know where we are, but I don't want you to tell me where I'm supposed to go. So the protector emotions have to be under the control of love and joy, just like love and joy have to be under the tutelage of the protector emotions. So here's what this means. If the protector emotions are not regulated, they dominate. They're allowed to become, and you know people who are, are not just afraid when I'm under threat, but are, afraid, are fearful people. Okay, that needs to be recalibrated. Uh, and we'll talk about how and what it means in a minute. We're not just sad when we experience loss, but we get stuck in sadness. And we're disabled by it. Sometimes it even can go clinical. In our way of thinking, we don't just get angry. We are angry. So anger, Jesus does not say don't get angry. He says, don't be angry. That's a difference. Anger. He knew he knew how to be angry. The reason God was angry or excuse me, the reason Christ came to the cross in the first place was because of anger. Right. A boundary has been violated. Anger results in the cross as a way of addressing the boundary violation that is sin. Changing language, and I hope this is somewhat helpful for you. I'm looking for signals that I'm making any sense here. And Are we doing all right? I know it's hot and and I'm generating more hot air than I'm. Anyway, I'm right in the the breezeway here, so I'm I'm feeling good. But here's what happens. If the protector emotions are allowed to grow without appropriate regulation and calibration by love and joy, guess what happens? Your life gets smaller to the things that you can control. Your life gets tinier and tinier. So the Proverbs has a little bit of a joke where the sloth says, I can't go out into the street. There's a lion loose. And so... He turns on his bed as a door on its hinge. We become paralyzed by our fear. We become paralyzed by our sadness. We become paralyzed by our anger. And the world becomes smaller. So, how does this work? Well, when love calibrates fear, the result is courage. You have to be afraid in order to be courageous. Does that make sense? So, so when I'm afraid, knowing that I am deeply, truly, passionately loved by God, I might still be afraid. I might still have tension in saying what needs to be said to my, my boss or my, my, my spouse or, or to some of the people I'm working with. I might be afraid of their response. I might have to put myself in a position of, of fear, but I don't, I can, I can still be courageous. Courage doesn't mean I'm not afraid anymore. Courage means I'm going to hang in there and do the right thing because I have a heavenly father who loves me and I'll be okay. 
regardless of the outcome. Joy is what comes along behind and enables that courage with hope. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So love, when it, when it matches up against sadness, enables hope and trust. It reminds us that n- there is no dark place you have ever been with loss, but that God is not completely and utterly at home in that darkness with you. So no matter how catastrophic your loss, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a dream, the loss of a preferred future. There is no loss that you have experienced, but that God isn't completely and utterly incarnated in that moment. Present. You're not alone. And that is what enables hope. When love encounters anger, I am given capacity for understanding and spirit-empowered self-control. Joy, on the other hand, becomes the strength of the Lord that enables us to endure our crosses as Jesus did His. Joy is the light in the darkness. So it's not just a gritting of teeth and a, and a, and a clenching of fists. It is Paul and Silas in prison saying, well, we have nothing better to do and we're not going anywhere. Why not worship? They didn't worship because they were in prison. They worshipped because they were worshippers. Prison was irrelevant. That's joy. Not happy. You clearly read from Paul later on. He's not pleased, but he's content. Do you see? Love and joy enable that. Joy is the deep knowledge that you have a heavenly Father who knows you, who knows where you're at, and is at work in all things for good. Now I want you to go to the text with me. The Psalms are a response of life. So the Psalms are are songs written in response to what has been going on. The Psalm that I'd like you to look with me at this morning, a very familiar one, is Psalm 23. And with in mind of what we've just been talking about, and then I want to take a couple of minutes and just frame what I want to do, uh, what this means for us, and then I'm done. But look at what it says. You're familiar with it. Read it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness And loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to notice something in this song. Go back to the first slide, if you would. Notice the pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores. He guides for His name's sake. Now to the next one. When I walk through the valley, however, I will fear no evil because 
You are with me. Do you feel the shift of pronoun there? In those first three verses, it's a testimony. In the last, when I'm in the middle of the Mass, it's a presence. You're with me. I don't need to be afraid. All five emotions are represented in this song. Here we are in the presence, perhaps, of an enemy. And what, does, what do we discover? We discover that God is completely at home and is acting as a host with a table spread, a cup poured, heads anointed with oil, indicating that there's no place where you are that He isn't. So what does it mean for me to love myself, my emotional self? First, sit and soak deeply in the love of God for you. And then pull into the rejoicing station often. Like you run out of fuel for your car, joy leaks. It gets consumed. So Paul will regularly says, rejoice. And again I'll say it. Rejoice. What does he mean? Go back to the source of joy. Your eternal destiny is settled with God in Christ. Remind yourself of that often. Rejoice. Because you are not the victim of your emotions. You're in charge. They can be recalibrated to reality. You don't have to do what you feel like doing. And your feelings can be helpful in fueling and guarding and guiding the flow of love and joy. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You for this um, opportunity just to spend some time thinking about things that we don't often think about. I pray as we uh, move into this next phase of our service uh, with people celebrating new life, that You, O Lord, would be glorified. But in the middle of all of that, I just pray for the um, submission with thanksgiving of our emotional well-being to You. Thank You that we don't need to be ashamed of our emotions. We can worship You with them. We can offer them up and You can disciple us in them, teaching us how to be angry or be sad or be fearful to the degree that You were so that love pushes back against them. Let it be so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.